You are listening to Unified Through Chronic and Mental Illness with your hosts, Angie Roberts and Kimberly Murphy. Please be advised that some of the topics of this podcast can be triggering and sensitive in nature. I had uh, these obsessive uh, desires and and, uh, thoughts wanting to control them, possess them permanently. And that's why you killed them. Right. Right. Not because I was angry with them, not because I hated them, but because I wanted to keep them with me. Hey guys, welcome back to Unified. This is Angie, and today we're talking about Antisocial Personality Disorder, or ASPD. ASPD is the umbrella for psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, and some people with borderline personality disorder and extreme social anxiety and the like. A true definition of a psychopath is a person who shows patterns of manipulation and violation to others. Technically, to receive an ASPD diagnosis, you have to be 18 years of age, but some people will show signs of conduct disorder which may be an early indicator of ASPD as early as 11. So I think that's interesting that mm-hmm. it's 11, but I would think it would be earlier because you hear about so many, how, you know, they catch the eight year old out killing uh, mm-hmm. animals in the woods or whatever. Right. And that is a big indicator of ASPD also. Then I tried to, uh, keeps a person alive by inducing a zombie-like state. Yeah, and Jeffrey Dahmer is a perfect example of this because he exhibited conduct disorder as early as two years old. See, that's what I mean. I feel like it could be, I personally feel like it could be younger than eight. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, as I mean, they, you know, they have reported that uh, as early as four, he was thrilled by the sounds of animals being um, swept out from under the house, the remains of animals. At six years old, he uh, developed a close relationship with a friend and the, the teachers gave her a bowl of tadpoles to bring home. And later they found out that uh, she had given them to Dahmer and he had taken the, he had taken the tadpoles and killed them with motor oil. So this is a seven years old. Um, and he just continued to get worse and worse. You know, at age 10, he was bleaching the bones of chickens. He was keeping insects oh in goodness. bottles of formaldehyde. He was decapitating rodents. Oh uh, gosh. He learned to use acid to strip meat off the bones of dead animals. This is 10 years old. Oh, well, and at 10 years old. Right. Wow. And of course, it just continued to get worse and worse. He started drinking alcohol at 13. And Dahmer had said later in his life that alcohol, he felt, would like suppress his uh, urges. And he really Mm -hmm. hoped that that would be the case. However, most people know from the stories that later on his first kill, uh, he had been really drunk, woke up the next morning and had blood all over him. And this guy was laying in bed next to him, completely mutilated and was dead. And he still to this oh, day wow. says he doesn't remember what happened. I, I've always been interested in serial killers, but Kimberly is kind of like the guru. <laughs> of ser- <laughs> 
uh, so it's been interesting. This has been an interesting topic to be uh, researching. Uh, yeah, um, I think so too. I, I'm just fascinated by their mind. And, you know, we have to same. remember that these guys have mental illnesses, not to take away from the victims. Uh, right. I think that it's important for us to research and know why they do what they do, because, you know, hopefully at some point we can recognize these patterns and prevent these things from happening. And, you know, I think the hardest part for me in reading all these stories is that most of these uh, types of people have been arrested multiple times because they get caught doing so many things. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer was caught uh, exposing himself to a child. He was caught uh, assaulting somebody when he tried to put sedatives in a drink and then assaulted somebody, but the person got away. So there was things leading up. He didn't just mm-hmm. go from, you know what I mean? Like he's been progressing his whole right. life. Right. That's so interesting. And wasn't it Dahmer that she said that actually felt sorry? He did have remorse. remorse. He did have yeah. remorse. Um, people will argue about that because they'll say it's, you know, fake remorse. But I do believe that Dahmer understood right and wrong, understood what he had done. He felt like he was, you know, um, living a really difficult life. He was incredibly lonely. And that was his motivation. Uh, right. His parents basically left him in a house when he was 14 years old. He was already feeling lonely as it was. And so could you imagine coming home and the house is cleaned out? Wow. And so, right. And so this is when, this is what like triggered him to kind of go from animals to people. His motivation was to make a sexual slave, like a zombie type that could never leave and would always stay with him. And uh, that was his prime motivation when anybody tried to leave he knew they would try to leave and he would kill them. Right. And later on he started, you know, everybody knows about the cannibalism. Um, He said it was so that they would always be with him. That's sadistic. Mm -hmm. Less sadistic, more, I think. Well, I mean, it depends on what mindset you look in. Of course it's very, I guess so. Yeah. So, you know, this is interesting because he was so lonely. He stole a male mannequin, took it home and, related to it in a sexual way is how they put it. But his grandmother found the mannequin. He was living with her at the time and threw it away. So then he started escalating with people after that. So he went from animals to mannequin to people and it just progressively got worse. Uh, He started going to gay bathhouses. And so he would talk to a man, he would get him a drink and he would drug the drink. And so then he would take the person home. Um, nowadays that probably wouldn't work because we all know <laughs> don't leave your drink unattended. Um, right. and this is, this is why, this is why, so um, but he would also lure people home and say, you know, I'll give you this much money if you'll pose for pictures for me. And then they would try to leave and he'd hit him in the head and, you know, all of these horrible things, right. but Dahmer so- did have some guilt. He really did. He knew right. he was a monster. He said demons were sort of uh, driving him. He did go to church at one point to try to uh, get some help. Right. I really, at the end of the day, think he was a very troubled person from the very beginning and had the mental health system, you know, understood or had they brought him. I think his parents didn't understand, didn't take him for help. They should have seen the signs. Um, right. The family knew that he was killing animals in the woods. He was decapitating cats. There was all now this his stuff. Fam- his family was a normal family, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah and there was no sort of like, yeah, there was no sort of, there was no child abuse. Um, right. He was just, they report him as young as like seven years old, being very fascinated with the inners of anything that he captured. So he would just open something up just to see what it looked like. He was fascinated with the bones and then the organs. And, um, you know, that turned into this very sadistic thing in his head. Um, right. That's. But all the signs were there. All the signs were there. Yeah. Right. So real quick, I have a question about uh, Dahmer. Mm -hmm. Was he a homosexual? Yeah, actually he was. And he, he kind of uh, grappled with that his whole life. He, he, you know, of course, you got to think of the 70s and the 80s. It really wasn't right. um, accepted as much. I mean, there were bathhouses and gay bars, and that's where he, you know, met people. But mm-hmm. he really internally struggled with that. And I think partially because he came from a religious family, but also because he really had horrible, horrible social anxiety. So when you put the two together, um, he felt separate from everyone. I don't think he had the confidence to even be around anybody, much less say and admit that he was homosexual. So I think that played a part in what happened with him. Well, it's really interesting, too, that um, there's three main causes for ASPD. Of course, there's others, but Mm -hmm. the three main causes um, were being abused as a child. You grow up with parents with ASPD. Or you grow up with alcoholic parents and he had, you know, neither. He none had, of those. He had none of those. Yeah. 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 He actually had a, a fairly normal family. I mean, they did get divorced at one point, but um, there was no child abuse. There was a rumor that he was sexually abused, uh, but he denies it. The neighbor denies it. So, you know, that's just rumor. And honestly, I think that um, it wouldn't be enough to justify how he was at such an early age growing up, you know, and growing up his fascination with, you know, the insides of animals and things like that. So he was like the typical serial killer profile. Right. Then I killed those men. I robbed them and I killed them as cold as ice. And I do it again too. And I know I'd kill another person because I've hated humans for a long time. She worked. Unlike Eileen Warnos, who was extremely mm. abused as a child. And many people know who she is because of the movie Monster. Right. Uh, but what some people don't know is that, you know, she had a really difficult family history. Um, she never met her father. He was in prison for the rape and attempted murder of a seven-year-old when she was born. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was convicted of sex crimes against children. He was in and out of prison and eventually he hung himself uh, when she was about four years old. Her mom abandoned her and her siblings, leaving them with her grandparents. So this was like her family beginning. Four years old, her father's in prison, hangs himself. Her mom abandons the family, and she's living with the grandparents. At age 11, she starts engaging in sexual activities in school so that she can get cigarettes, drugs, and food. 11 years old. Could you even imagine 11? my heart. It does. Yeah, me too. And I think in a way she was, I think she was trying to escape from her life, but also obviously there was a mental health issue there that wasn't being attended to. And, you know, a lot of us do that sort of self-medication. So I really do think she was trying to escape from her pain. Um, She was also engaged in sexual activities with her brother. Oh, wow. 
and she was sexually assaulted and beaten by her grandfather, who is also an alcoholic. So now you've got the child abuse and being raised by an alcoholic. Um, According to what she said, before beating her, uh, her grandfather would force her to strip out of her clothes and, you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's a really horrible history that she has. At age 14, she did become pregnant because she was raped by a friend of her grandfather's. Mm. You know, who had already been sexually abusing her. So that's horrible. Right. So I mean, think about what was going on in that house. Probably more than what we even know. Right, right. I agree. Yeah. So she gave birth uh at a home for unwed mothers, and then the child was placed for adoption. Um, right after that, she sort of just like dropped out of school, dropped away from the family, and started uh, her full-time occupation, I guess we would say, as a prostitute Mm -hmm. to support herself. Um, And, you know, she already, at that point, she really had a terrible, terrible view of men and rightfully so. Oh, yeah. I think I would hate men at this point, too. Right. Right. And I mean, enough to kill them, but. Well, no, I mean, she, (laughs) right. (laughs) So she claims that everybody that she killed, all the men that she killed, raped her and it was all in self-defense. And of course, the courts found out that's not true. You know, um, we're not really sure if she had some sort of psychosis, Mm -hmm. if she was triggered, if she was doing it because she was finally in love with her new girlfriend that she had met. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're really not sure, but she had no remorse whatsoever. So... There's the psychotic thinking right there. No remorse whatsoever. A lot of people felt that she was psychotic. I mean, she did get uh, the death penalty and her final words were, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th. Like the movie, big mother ship and all, I'll be back. Whoa. Yeah. So we don't really know what that means, but it kind of gives a glimpse into where her mind was. Uh, Right. A lot of people did say that her IQ was under uh, 70 and it was Mm. because of all the beatings that she had endured. Um, I can imagine she may have had some uh, traumatic brain injuries. I really do think she did. Yeah, I really do think she did. But what's interesting is that she didn't actually start killing until she fell in love with her first girlfriend. And Hmm. that's interesting that, you know, like, I don't know if maybe she, because she was in love, she felt triggered uh, by the men. Suddenly it was like more um, intense for her. I don't know, but it is interesting to note that she did start killing after that point. I need to know this answer. I do too. I'm probably going to be having to research that. (laughs) <laughs> it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. It would be Especially with, uh, she was diagnosed with b- uh, borderline personality disorder and they have a really hard time making connections. So right. I wonder if it has something to do with that diagnosis. I mean, she wasn't treated and she had a lot of other things going on. So right, that, it would be interesting to find out. Not being treated is a scary thing when you've had a really bad past. Exactly. Yeah, it can get really bad. And so there's like, there's like three ways to treat, they can treat ASPD. And two is with the psychotherapies. 
Um, one is psychodramatic psychotherapy and one is CBT. And in those two, it increases the awareness of the negative and unconscious thoughts and behaviors. So it's pretty much just increasing their awareness and learning how to cope with that, I guess, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I it's interesting <laughs> that it would work for antisocial personality disorder. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I, I wouldn't think so. But you know, hey, I mean, they're saying it does. So right. And then medications are often used. And I think they use that word a little loosely. <laughs> right. Um, that they um, like antidepressants, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, anti-anxiety drugs, you know, whatever their issue is, these, they are real people. And that's one thing that we're trying mm-hmm. to bring out with this podcast. Like they have a mental illness and some people are going to be like, but they killed all these people. Mm-hmm. I understand that. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, I shouldn't face charges because I still believe whatever you do in your illness, you need to um, face the consequences. Yeah. Definitely face the consequences for, I don't think that we should just be all willy nilly out here. Yeah. Here's, here's uh, some mood stabilizers. You can go back out right. Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, right. and really, honestly, I think they should be treated earlier. The first five times they get arrested for exposing themselves or doing something ridiculous like that um, and dangerous like that, because especially if it involves children, very scary. Um, you know, this is when we should be grabbing them off the street and and treating them and preventing exactly. further issues. So speaking of that, the long-term outlook for people with ASPD is increased chances of going to jail, abusing drugs, and dying by suicide. They don't often um, even get help with ASPD. And like you were saying, unless they were faced with legal troubles and the court forces them to go into treatment. So they don't even realize, I don't even know if they realize what they're doing. Kind I don't of like think narcissism. they do. Right. Like, I mean, I know they realize they're killing. I mean, I don't think they realize that they have a problem. And I know people out there are going to be like, well, how don't they realize they have a problem? Well, they, some of them do. And I think some of them don't. Well, because I think that they feel in, in different, it's different for different cases. Like in Eileen Mornos's right. case, she felt like she was defending herself. In Jeffrey Dahmer's case, he knew that something was wrong with him, but he was compelled and he couldn't help it. Right. Um, you know, there's there's different reasons for each of them. And some people who are psychotic just believe that they're above everyone and are never going to get caught. Um, so right. they're not looking for help because, you know, why do they need help? <laughs> right. And by yeah. the way, I want to say this. I think we've already said it, but I definitely will probably say it even again that not everybody with ASPD is a serial killer. Like you can have ASPD and not be a serial killer. Most people or have ASPD are not serial killers. Right. Exactly. So, um, um, they have their own <laughs> issues. This is definitely an elevated version of ASPD that we're talking about. And, um, right. you know, probably in these cases, untreatable. However, they could have been prevented had our justice system been different, but that's an entirely different podcast. Right. <laughs> even now with how aware we are with our kids of taking them to the uh, doctor when we start to think something is wrong or whatever mentally. That's you true. Know. So there are several traits that ASPD people have in common. Mm-hmm. And a few of those are that they are socially irresponsible. They have socially irresponsible behavior. Um, they disregard 
or they violate the rights of others. They have the inability to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, they have difficulty showing empathy. I don't think they have empathy. I don't um, think they have empathy at all. Or sympathy. And I, I find the inability apathy. to any apathy, right? <laughs> any apathy. Um, I have a hard time with the inability to distinguish from right and wrong because many of them, I think, well, maybe logically they know uh, that other people follow these rules. So I guess that makes sense. Um, right. And if they don't even know that they actually have an issue, they probably don't think it's wrong. That's true. Cause like we just talked about Eileen Warnos and she really didn't believe she was doing anything wrong. So that makes sense. You basically uh, identified Nancy Fox as one of your uh, projects. What happened then? Uh, at first, uh, she was uh, spotted, and then I did a little homework. I dropped by once to check the mailbox to see what her name was, uh, found out where she worked. Uh, we'll stop by there once uh, at Hillsburg and kind of sized her up. I, the more I knew about a person, the, the more I felt comfortable with it. So I did that a couple of times. And then I just selected a night, which was this particular night, to try it, and it worked out. All right. Can you tell me what you did on the night of December 8, 1977? Now, about two or three blocks away, I parked my car and walked to that residence. Uh, knocked at the knocked at the door first to make sure to see if anybody was in there because I knew she arrived home at a particular time from where she worked. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. Uh, broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. All right. Did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? Uh, I confronted her, uh, told her there I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problems, that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. Uh, we talked for a while. Uh, she smoked a cigarette. Uh, while, the, while we smoked a cigarette, I went through her purse, uh, identifying some stuff. She finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. And I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? And I said, yes. Uh, she went to the bathroom and uh, came. And I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. And uh, when she came out, I uh, handcuffed her. And uh, I don't really remember whether Sir? You handcuffed her? You had a pair of handcuffs? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. What happened then? Well, anyway, I, had her, I handcuffed her, had her lay on the bed. And then I tied her feet, and uh, then I, I I was also undressed to a certain degree, and then I got on top of her, and then I reached over, took either either her feet were tied or not tied. But anyway, I took I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. All right. So with having no empathy, that reminds me of like BTK. He had no empathy or sympathy for anybody that he killed at all. That is so true. Um, that was like the most chilling thing about him is when they actually got his confession in court, he rattled it off. Like he was just talking about uh, what he did on a Sunday. Like there was mm. no emotion. He talked about his victims as projects. He called them projects. Uh, uh -huh. He talked about the stages of his projects of, you know, um, choosing and prowling and then stalking and then completing his project. And he would have 
uh, all of his stuff in a briefcase. Like it was, it was just so bizarre. And he always had jobs where he would have access to their home. So like at one point he worked for ADT. Uh, so he would always be like at the door saying, Oh, here I am. You know, I belong in your house. Uh, right. But a lot of times he broke in too. He had, um, they basically called him a sadist. He also had fetishes, but um, he fantasized about committing sadistic acts as a child, mm. which I can't even imagine that. Like how, I don't even know how that happened. I can't it's, even wrap my head around that as a child. Yeah. Yeah. I um, think we have a hard time with that because it's not normal. <laughs> exactly. And he had an interest in psychology and criminology all his life. Uh, but everybody said he was very articulate. Um, he had likely been interviewed by and cooperative with the task force that, you know, was, was they called it the Ghostbusters that were trying to, <laughs> trying to find him. I don't know why they called it that. Um, sorry, sorry. He had been a deacon in his church uh, everybody that met him says he was, you know, very articulate and uh, easy to talk to, intelligent. So then there's this other side of him that has no empathy whatsoever. I mean, the things that he did, I am really haunted by the story of Nancy Fox. So, you know, he broke into the house. He told her that he had a sexual problem and he would tie her up. So I'm imagining this whole scene. He's like, she was crying a little bit and you know, and so then he went about his bind, torture, and kill, which is how he came up with his name. Wow. Uh, and again, he did this again uh, to another woman who had children in the house. And he had yeah. her, yeah, he had her help barricade the children after he had tried to tie them up and it didn't work He because they were being loud and crying. He said, you know, I made her help me barricade them into the bathroom and then, uh, you know, she basically had a talk with him. He said he had to do this. I have to tie her up. I have a sexual problem. Same situation. And they found right. her the same way. So, oh, wow. um, you know, he had no remorse whatsoever. Like, that is exactly how we talked about it. Like, you know, but the thing about BTK also is that he spanned 30 years without getting caught. Wow. He, yeah, he had such a desire to be acknowledged for his crimes that he wrote letters to the local newspaper constantly. And so they were constantly like putting these things in the paper so that he wouldn't kill somebody else. But of course, he always did. Now, he had narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, yes. ASPD. And yes. do you know of any other things that he had or no? He had OCD. Uh ASPD, right. uh, narcissism, and he he was definitely diagnosed as a sadist and also as a he had fetishes. So right. put all of that together, and it's just a horrible combination, you know. Sounds and he was so scary. Yeah, and they said that because he could live two different lives so easily, that just proves the lack of remorse. Because you know, here he is. Right. Did you mention jobs. that he was married? Oh yeah, he was married. He has a child. Yeah. He has a daughter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so meanwhile, he's writing all these letters because he just can't accept the fact that there's people talking in jail and saying, you know, they're the reason that happened. He's like, oh, no, they're not the reason it happened. I'm still out here. Uh, he would send in poems about people that he killed. He would send in code letters. And eventually mm -hmm. that was his undoing. I wonder if he wanted to be caught in a way because he wanted everybody to know 
I think what so. What he had done. That it was he really did. He really face. did. Yep. Yeah, he did. Finally, he, you know, like, mm-hmm. no, I did this because, well, exactly. you can go and listen to the episode on narcissism. <laughs> he was proud of his work and he called it his work. His work. That's and just scary. people were projects. And when mm-hmm. he killed them, he said he put them down. Wow. But make no mistake how sick this man was. He took pictures of everyone. He took pictures of himself dressed up like his victims. He, wow. um, One of the first places he went to, he hung the children in the basement. He had mm-hmm. no remorse at all. None. None. It's very scary to watch. When you see like him in court, when he's doing the confession in, mm-hmm. in the courtroom to the judge, he talked about it like it was just rattling off his resume wow that is so crazy i need to listen to those tapes you've told me but i'm a little scared (laughs) (laughs) we might put some up on the on the uh website so that people who are interested could see them but we'll definitely put a trigger warning because they are very disturbing so there are a few other characteristics that um aspd sufferers have in common they have a tendency to lie often they're manipulating and they hurt others on purpose Mm -hmm. um reoccurring problems they have reoccurring problems with the law they have a general disregard towards safety and responsibility they are risk takers and they have risky behavior Mm -hmm. they lack emotional connections which would make sense right (laughs) absolutely right they have superficial charm about them. This reminds me of Ted Bundy, superficial charm. Mm-hmm. Very super. <laughs> yes. 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 They can be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't care if they hurt others and they are impulsive and abusive. When most people see blood or violence in a movie, their heart beats faster, their breath quickens and their palms get sweaty. A sociopath has the opposite reaction they get calmer that is so interesting that is so interesting yeah because i mean okay so we've seen time and time again uh even in just movies that are not that are fiction where they show the sociopath or the psychopath and they're like they're very tense and and just uh full of anxiety but then once they do what they do they're very calm they're very calm. So I could see how watching it or seeing it could just make them calm. Just Right. It's weird, though. It's so, just... ladies, this, this is what you do with all your new dates. <laughs> First, you say, do you know what ASPD is? I hate to make <laughs> no. a joke, but <laughs> show them the, the, latest, <laughs> the latest horror movie and, uh, you know, see if they're breathing any faster or their palms are sweaty. <laughs> Right. Oh my god. If they if they stay calm, don't stay at the date. Just be like right. that's, I gotta go. That's the time to excuse yourself. <laughs> right. Psychiatry.com says that psychopaths have no conscience while sociopaths have a conscience, but it's weak. So it's like they're almost the same thing, except that sociopath may have a tad bit of a conscience. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, if something really big happens, they probably go, Oh well. Right. They right. both lack empathy. Mm-hmm. So that's um, not, that's not surprising. No. 
Most aren't violent. They use manipulation and reckless behavior to get what they want. Thank goodness. Right. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Yes. Psychopaths are highly intelligent and charming, but they really have no interest in you. They really don't. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of weird, but the sociopaths are less able to play along. They make it plain that they're not interested in anyone but themselves. So they often blame others and have excuses for their own behavior. So I have a little bit to say about that because I have a friend or not a friend anymore, but a friend uh, that I did have for many years. He was diagnosed with anti-social personality disorder and also as a sociopath. And, um, you know, this actually, this is so true right here. They're not interested in anyone but themselves. He would tell the same story about himself over and over and over and over again. And he was very much victim mentality. So anything that didn't go right in his life was never his fault. Um, right. We know people like that and they're, they're not sociopaths. However, the difference between them and a sociopath is that they will manipulate you with that. Yes. They will manipulate you with their victim mentality. And make it very plain that they're not even interested in you, but they will manipulate you with their excuses for their behavior. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And, um, you know, the main reason being that they want to make sure they they get what they need. So they're trying to play that card like the narcissist does with with an empath. Yes, they are. So here are some um, tips to stay mentally strong when dealing with someone you may think has ASPD or, you know, any of those kind of traits. Mm -hmm. First of all, and this is a good one, is just simply avoid that person when possible because they're going to try to intimidate you or try to get you know, knowledge from you about yourself or whatever. And empaths out there, empaths, they they cannot be helped, honestly. Um, They have to do the work themselves and they have to really want to. So there is nothing you can do to change the situation. Avoid them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I had to say that because I know there's a million women in the world who are just like, but I could change. I mean, Ted Bundy had a girlfriend and she just thought she could do everything for him. You can't turn a psychopath into a house husband. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's <very> true. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. So the next one is don't show you're intimidated at all. If they feel that they can intimidate you, then um, you're in trouble and you're in trouble. So mm-hmm. keep your emotions in check. Um Losing gives a psychopath power over you and they see that they can manipulate your emotions. And when they see they can do it, they're going to do it. They're going to mm-hmm. do it every time they see you. Intimidation and, and, is their power. Right. And they know how to do it just a little by little, even if it's standing over you or whatever, it's just mm-hmm. a little bit intimidating. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was just talking about that in the past podcast where I talked about uh, triggers and you know, someone just in your face, standing your ground in an, an assertive or aggressive manner. Um, in this case, we need to stand right. our ground in an assertive manner. Uh, but they, they use intimidation. They absolutely do. Yeah. And if you're just assertive with them, it kind of turns them off because mm-hmm. they want to be you to be intimidated. So they have to be in control. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they lie a lot. So don't don't buy into their stories. Um, the psychopath often 
often uses long-winded tales to paint themselves as victims. <laughs> so they often blame other people and then they refuse to take the responsibility for their wrongdoing. This is exactly like the friend I was just talking about. This is typical. Right. Uh, yeah, the stories that they tell and they're very convincing. Another one is turning the conversation back to them. Pointing out a psychopath's flaws can be the best way to disarm them because they think they're perfect, first of all. So if you are pointing out their flaws, they don't really have anything to do with you because you don't think they're perfect. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Yeah. And if you do have to be in communication with, like, somebody with ASPD opt for online communication whenever you can you know that can be traced and all that kind of stuff and um and they also thrive on negotiating face-to-face so they really want you to be face-to-face all the time um instead of on the phone right and if somebody's already manipulating you and they just say okay now I need you on the phone now I need you face-to-face that's for a reason like they already know right. that face-to-face is where they thrive and where they can actually do all this manipulating. Um, so if somebody's doing that to you and you already have some red flags about them, um, yeah, keep them online. Definitely do not buy into their demands. So this has been a really heavy topic and normally we do a mantra of the week, but you know, obviously it wasn't really called for in this situation. So what are your closing thoughts, Angie? Are psychopaths capable of more genuine human thoughts and emotions? That's not where they live. I don't think there's awareness. That's not where they live. Psychopaths say what they want to get what they want. You've got to remember that part. They are opportunistic. They are going to win until they get caught. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot to say to that. It's very true. We want to remind people that, you know, this is a mental illness. Um, We're not saying that it excuses what they've done. And, of course, the victims deserve uh, all of the attention. But we did want to bring to light that, um, you know, certain mental illnesses put together along with the right environment can just create a perfect storm. There are some illnesses like narcissism, for example, that cannot be helped. Uh, no matter how right. much therapy they have, uh, it's never going to improve. So they don't have a cure for ASPD. They don't have a cure for narcissism. Right. Unfortunately, right. there is no cure. All they can do is, you know, go to therapy and take their medicine and taking their medicine is going to be a big part of coping with their um, personality disorder. And, you know, we, we always say we're stronger together and, and that doesn't always just mean um, boosting each other up. Sometimes it means, keeping an eye on people in the community and, and what mm-hmm. they're doing. Um, sometimes we'll see the signs that somebody's not right and they may need some extra help and that's important. So we, we need to look after each other no matter what our diagnoses are. Um, and I hope that, so true. you know, this episode has helped you think of it on a different level. So I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. I know it's a really hard topic to discuss and we just want to reiterate that, you know, everybody with ASPD is obviously not violent. Um, this is an extreme case where the perfect storm just came together. And it was interesting how they were all very different growing up and still came to the same place. And we just wanted to, uh, you know, show sort of how that goes in an extreme case. 
Um, we hope that you will join us next week. And we, just, please just remember, we are stronger together and we so appreciate your support. Mask up. Peace out. Unified through chronic and mental illness can be found at anchor.fm slash unified. There you can find all social media links as well as other ways to listen.